0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Right now is the most critical time for us to take back control of our food supply and become self-reliant by having our very own food forest. Transform your yard into a food forest and create a system of self-reliance that's easy and enjoyable with our friends at Food Forest Abundance. No matter where you're starting from, you can become more self-reliant. You can take your self-reliance to the next level by becoming a producer of your own food through growing and foraging. Learn how to turn your property into an income-producing source of economic self-reliance. If you're ready to go off-grid, click the link in the description and use coupon code FORBIDDEN for discounts on your very own food forest with Food Forest Abundance. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, my guest is Phoenix Aurelius. Before I bring him on, I want to tell you about how you can protect yourself from harmful EMF radiation with EMF Harmonized. They offer protection from harmful electromagnetic frequencies for your phone, computer, or tablet, and your routers. I have one on my computer, my cell phone. It's just a little disc that goes directly on your devices, I've already noticed a difference. I'm not feeling as groggy. I'm Sleeping is better at night. I have more energy during the day after spending hours in front of my computer or near my phone. Uh, You can now get their awesome bracelets that offer the same protection as the strips. The products were created by a mechanical engineer with three decades of experience in EMFs and telecommunication. Just use the link in the description to check out EMF Harmonized and protect yourself today. And subscribe to Forbidden Knowledge News on LBRY.com. It's our official backup channel. We also have a brand new show called Beyond Classified. It's exclusively on Rockfin. Rockfin is a decentralized, new, independent platform for free-thinking content creators. um, And you can get all of our exclusive content that is no longer allowed on YouTube and your other mainstream platforms anymore. Uh, also, you can get tickets to Forbidden Knowledge NewsCon 2021. Right now, uh, go to forbiddenknowledge.news. This is going to be April 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. We're going to have 12 extraordinary presenters. Uh, visit the website to check out the lineup, uh, their topics, and all the information, and get your tickets today and tonight i want to welcome phoenix aurelius he is an alchemist researcher educator and modern renaissance man his work focuses on reconstructing spagyric theory philosophy practice and pharmacopoeia for the 21st century at the phoenix aurelius research academy his personal mission is to integrate alchemy into the social fabric of our culture To inspire transformation and conscious evolution of both ecology and humanity. Phoenix, welcome. How are you doing tonight?
2: Hey, thanks so much. I'm doing great. How about you?
1: I'm doing very well. Uh, Tonight is going to be awesome. Um, I've been looking forward to it. Um, I think now, with everything that is happening on our planet, it's an amazing opportunity for people to discover some of these alchemical practices and the benefits it can have. Uh, for your health, especially because the pharmaceutical and medical mafia don't have your health and well-being in mind. And these uh, spagyric practices and alchemical practices are, you know, they're being used in some mainstream areas like cannabis and essential oils, but I believe there could be so much more that these practices could bring to the world when it comes to our future and the future of our health. Um, I really want to start with how you discovered this and got started with
2: uh, Western alchemical practices and spagyrics. Cool. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for me, it was actually more of a case of fate and fortune than it was uh, interest. I mean, I had always been interested in herbs from the time I was a kid, and uh, you know, I would just pick plants, not even knowing their medicinal qualities or whatever, and and you know, mix them up with water and mud and you know anything else that I had just as a kid playing around, but. When I was uh, 16, I was a skateboarder and most of my friends and I, we like, that was our primary interest. And so, you know, I had always fancied myself that I was going to go pro and was really working towards that. And one day I went off of, uh, there was like a quarter pipe at a classic skating, uh, skate park. And I went up a half pipe or rather a quarter pipe came down, hit a kicker into a foam pit. And, uh, I sunk to the bottom of the foam pit after landing and my left ankle hit the very bottom. I sunk all the way through and it hit the bottom. And when it hit, it didn't hit straight on my ankle, literally folded up and the inside of my foot and my left foot ended up touching my leg. So it was completely dislocated. And, um, that, not that same instance, but I was just trying to do some basic, simple stuff, uh, about 30 days later, cause I thought I healed and dislocated it again. And then 30 days after that is about 35 days after that, I went out skating again. I was just hanging out, just not even doing anything, even really important and dislocated it again. So the doctor basically said, listen, kid, you got to give up this sport. You keep hurting yourself. You're not giving yourself enough time. There's no chance that you're going to make it. So I said, all right, well, that's fine. Uh, all my friends were skaters. I suddenly couldn't skate, and so I ended up uh, printing off a lot of resources at uh, the my high school uh, science lab, uh, computer lab, and just went out into the forest. I lived by Fernwood Forest, where I grew up, and uh, I'd go out there and just harvest all sorts of plants. It started with like Yarrow and scrub oak leaves, and you know, all sorts of things. And uh, I'd have my friends because I was I was way underage at that time, I'd have my friends go to the store and buy me like little 250 mil bottles of Everclear, and, and uh, I'd make tinctures out of things. I built a little stainless steel teapot distillation kit with some uh, copper tubing that I got at Home Depot and a stainless steel teapot, made myself a, a little miniature uh, essential oil still. And I would just, you know, stuff things in there and experiment and keep notes. And, you know, eventually I found a document from the philosophers of nature. It's like how to make a spagyric tincture. And I didn't know what spagyric was. I didn't know that that was really even a thing. Um, But I found that document and I just started following that document's recipes and making spagyrics. And it wasn't until about two or three years later that I actually found out what spagyria was and that spagyric's um in general were actually a part of the alchemical tradition um that happened through a much more advanced herbalist friend when we were comparing her tinctures to my tinctures and you know she'd always come into the cafe where I was working and she'd be like how are how are your tinctures so potent like you give me the smallest amount and I can feel them she's like I've, I've made tinctures for 35 years and it's not like that so we compared notes one day over lunch and she was like whoa, you're going through a lot of processes that I'm not even familiar with. like they don't teach this in herbal school. So she uh, she's the one who ended up doing the research and finding out that what I was doing was actually part of the alchemical tradition and that that forever changed my life. As soon as I found out that, I was like, yes, that's great. And I sought it out with extreme fortitude and and just you know basically dedicated my entire life towards, Uh, that branch and and style of medicine. That's really cool.
1: Now, for the audience that isn't really familiar, what are the kind of basic ideas of Western alchemy or practical alchemy, uh, spagyrics, and how it can apply to us and our health and well-being?
2: Sure. I'll give you the extremely abbreviated version. Since the 1500s, a guy named Paracelsus kind of created a new take or a a generalized philosophy on western alchemical practice that includes three what we call philosophic essentials and in that uh, it's stated that the entire universe actually abides by these holographic and fractal principles and everything is composed of these three philosophic essentials which we call sulfur mercury and salt those aren't chemical sulfur like brimstone Chemical mercury, like metallic mercury, or chemical salt, like sodium chloride, rather those are archetypes and that the archetypes have multitudinous ways of showing themselves. The sulfur is the soul of a material, the uh, mercury is the spirit of a material, and the salts are the actual body, the purified uh, corpus of the material. So. In the plant kingdom, what that looks like for about 95% plus of the plants is that the sulfur of a plant has two grades, one's called fixed sulfur, the other is called volatile sulfur. Volatile sulfur, most everybody is familiar with that in the plant kingdom as essential oils. So the essential oil that a plant uh, produces is the volatile sulfur, the higher soul, uh, the higher self, so to speak, of the Uh, Plant that we're working with. And the fixed sulfur is the extract, either an aqueous extract, meaning like if you've ever made a tea, that's an aqueous extract of the plant that you're making tea from, Uh, or an ethanolic extract or other extracts that can be made with more advanced solvents too, like uh, non-polars and uh, ethyl acetate and different types of things like that. All of those are all fixed sulfurs of that plant. So like for instance, Rick Simpson oil or you know, a cannabis extract, which most people are very well familiar with, that is a fixed sulfur of the cannabis plant. Whereas the terpenes are going to be the, uh, essential oil content, the higher soul, the volatile soul of, uh, that plant, the spirit, uh, most people are also familiar with this. They just probably haven't put this together. When you go to the, uh, you know, the alcohol, uh, store, what do you call those, um, Um, liquor liquor store yeah yeah liquor store uh you see distilled spirits there those are spirits that are distilled from various plants that have been fermented and refined through distillation and the same thing is true within the alchemical tradition in fact that's actually where the term spirit came from was from the the alchemical tradition having created that Uh, and then people just you know adopting that terminology to a more craft trade so With that being said, the spirit of a plant is when we ferment that plant and then distill it out uh, in order to obtain its pure 95% or higher percent ethanol. Uh, And then finally you have uh, the salts and what ends up uh, being the salt of pretty much the entire vegetable kingdom is potassium carbonate. So when we take a plant, we start it on fire, let it incinerate down and then roast those ashes for an exceptionally long time, you're just left with a very white or pale gray ash material. And when we leach that ash material with water and filter out the ashes, what stays behind in that water is all of the potassium carbonate. And if you didn't calcine very well, a few other impurities as well. But when we evaporate the water down, now there's no more water. There's just all of those minerals. And we continue repeating that process of even taking those minerals roasting those for a long time, leaching those out with water, filtering them, evaporating them, so on and so forth until it's 99% higher uh, or 99% or higher percent um, of potassium carbonate. And uh, that is the primary salt of the vegetable kingdom. And so the basis form of working with spagyria in the modern day revolves around making a spagyric tincture, which is to say to use a form of ethanol, ideally from the same plant, but not always. Like for instance, the majority of the tinctures on my website are not made from the indigenous plant spirit. They're made with what's called an exogenous plant spirit. Uh, I'm using organic cane ethanol. And then we extract the herb rendering its fixed sulfur and whatever other volatiles were, were, uh, inside of that herb. And then we burn out all of that material that we just tinctured, uh, all of the biomass and reduce it down to its potassium carbonate form. And then we add all of that back into the finished product. Uh, and what ends up happening chemically is that there is a, uh, iatrochemical reaction that ends up happening, which is the exact same chemical reaction that modern pharmaceutical medicine uses. And it's actually modern pharmaceutical medicine derived all of its processes from Paracelsian medicine and the ways that Paracelsian medicine had evolved through the several centuries between the times of Paracelsus and of course, the times of the advent of uh, modern pharmaceutical medicine. But the difference is, is that uh, with the spagyric process, what we're doing is taking the potassium metal ion that is found in the potassium carbonate and it reacts with whatever volatile oils and or acids are naturally present inside of the sulfur of that material. And so the sulfur and the salts end up having a chemical reaction and that creates an neatrochemical reaction that inserts potassium ions into the tincture and actually changes and certainly complicates the chemical structure of what was initially in there. So there's a huge difference between an herbalist tincture and a spagyric tincture of the exact same plant because of that iatrochemical process happening. And pharmaceuticals are basically, they started with the same exact processes. The only difference is that they found that some metals are widely available and uh, easier to procure than the potassium carbonate is. And so they might say, take magnesium or a calcium ion or something even more complex and be able to combine that with a synthesized uh, sulfur, so to speak, uh, chemical constituent in order to make uh, what I would refer to as a bastardized uh, version of what nature is already capable of. Whereas Spageria sticks according to natural processes and what's found in the plant or the mineral or the metal or animal product itself. Uh, modern pharmaceutical chemistry actually just does things slightly different by drawing sources that they know are you know chemically compatible and working in that regard but the problem with that is two things really uh modern pharmaceutical medicines are synthesized for one two is that um oftentimes they're they're not our bodies haven't evolved for hundreds of thousands of years with the chemical constituency that are found inside of those particular medicines and so because of both of those things there tends to be a, a higher risk of adverse reactions or side effects that you don't typically see with the more natural counterpart of spagyrics.
1: And earlier you mentioned, uh, you talked about separating the soul, spirit, and body of the plant. Um, that's very fascinating. I wonder if you could talk a little about, about how that that process works and some examples of, you know, possibly some of the plants that you're using in the tinctures that you, you, you know, you can come up with
2: but with these processes. Sure. Yeah. So there are, there's really only two ways to be able to separate out, uh, within Spagyric methodology to be able to separate out the essential oil of a plant. Both of those are a form of distillation. One is called hydro distillation. That's where you stick all of the herbal biomass inside of water and boil the herbs inside of water. That's called a hydro distillation. Uh, As you do that inside of a distillation train, the essential oils are pulled out, they vaporize out of the herb, they rise with the water, they descend over the helm, they condense, and because oil floats on top of water, at the other end of your distillation train, you have your essential oil floating on the top, and any of your hydrosol is what that product is referred to, the herbal infused uh, clear distilled water, is now below the essential oil content. And so we can either siphon it off or, you know, there's a number of different things. There's called essenciase that will separate it. There's a uh, Clevenger apparatus. There's all sorts of, you know, uh, separation funnels. There are lots of different ways of separating out the water from the, the oil at the very end so that you can isolate your essential oil. The second process is almost identical. It's just called a steam distillation, though. It's where you have two flasks. Your bottom flask has water in it. You have a flask above that with all of your herbs in it, and then you have a distillation head and condenser. And what ends up happening with the steam distillation as indicated by the name is that the steam from the water rises up through the biomass and it's the steam that ends up pulling the essential oils out. The end process looks exactly the same. Uh, The steam will end up passing over the helm and creating hydrosol and the uh, oil will float on top of that hydrosol and then you separate them exactly the same. So that's how we separate out essential oils and isolate them on their own uh, within the context of spagyria With uh, extracting a fixed sulfur, there's pretty much only one method and that's known as uh, maceration or extraction. Um, and that there's a lot of different processes in the laboratory that you can use for that. Um, most people, it's as simple and as available for them as getting a mason jar and taking, say, vodka or, you know, a higher proof alcohol like, uh, you know, Everclear or ideally an organic option like uh, you can find from uh, organicalcohol.com and being able to pour. Uh, the alcohol over the herbal material. And when you do this, uh, the alcohol very quickly starts to obtain the essence or the fixed sulfur and whatever other volatile oils are inside of that plant into the ethanol. And uh, from there, it's just separating out the herbs and the ethanol. And uh, now you have a basic herbalist grade tincture. So the tincturing process is pretty much the way of isolating your fixed sulfur. Once you get that tincture uh, to get to the fixed sulfur alone, all we do is we stick the whole tincture inside of a flask and distill out the ethanol. The ethanol comes out and it leaves all of our fixed sulfur behind. Um, And what's interesting about that process is that if the plant that you were tincturing has any essential oils, some do, some don't like horsetail, virtually no essential oils, it's all fixed sulfur. Um, nettle the same way. But a lot of plants do have essential oils in them when they're dried. And so when you distill it out, the essential oils are married to the spirit. So when you distill the spirit out, then you can smell that spirit. And now it smells like the plant that it was taken from instead of just like ethanol. Uh, And that's because the essential oils have permanently bound themselves. And we say that they go over the helm together. And that's because again, the higher nature of the soul and perfect purified spirit like to see eye to eye. They're about at the same vibrational rate. Uh, whereas fixed sulfur corresponds more to the earth. If I had to relate this in terms of like uh, psychological and physiological terms, your fixed sulfur is like the color of your hair, the color of your skin, the color of your eyes, the sound of your voice. Those are the types of things. They, they are definitely distinct and unique to you. Right. But, it's more that they're distinct and unique to your physical body when you die the essence of your personality is your essential oil not the color of your skin the color of your eyes whatever else but while all of you are together the your personality you know the way that you're born things like that all of it stays together and it it gives you the particular representation that you are as an individual and so That's kind of the difference between the higher soul, which are your inherent talents and interests, uh, things like that. And the way that you come across, which is your fixed sulfur, that's kind of the same difference uh, as what you would see in the plant kingdom. So, um, and yeah, in later works, you're just making more advanced, what we call menstrua, which are basically like different solvents. Uh, With which you can perform that tincturing process. So, you know, ethyl acetate, for instance, or diethyl ether, or uh, other solvents that are able to be made through alchemical and chemical processes, um, those are typically what what we end up making, but the process is the same. You tincture the plant just like you would with ethanol. So uh, that's that. And then, you know, calcining, and uh, basically it's uh, calcination, dissolution filtration and evaporation, uh, in order to get to your salts. Um, and that's true regardless of, of, you know, what you're working on, which plant you're working on, which animal material, which metal, it's all, it, it abides by the exact same fractal and holographic processes. So those are, that's like the actual nuts and bolts of the laboratory procedures within spageria It's just that the, what you're working on and how you want to reconstruct, um, different items of pharmacopoeia, uh, you will always have those three components, but how you go about obtaining it, when you add it, in what proportions you add it, how you add them together, things like that, they will actually create different chemical reactions and different medicines, uh, even from the same plant, depending on all of these different things. So like a single item of pharma, uh, like a single herb can make multiple items of pharmacopoeia, a spagyric tincture being the basis, uh, you can make spagyric essences uh, per destillatio. You can make them per circumsquindo. You can make a philosophic spagyric essence. You can make a spagyric clysis, You can make a spagyric uh, stone. You can make, you know, uh, a spagyric ends tincture. You can make spagyric. I mean, the, the items of pharmacopoeia from a single plant are very multitudinous. I could probably, if I thought about it for long enough, come up with at least 30 different items that can be made from just one plant, all of which will have unique chemical uh, characteristics. And as a result, unique medicinal effects on the body. What are some of the most, um,
1: while we're talking about plants, some of the most common plants that you're using to, to
2: make these tinctures? Well, when you start off, um, you make one, uh, the, the traditional concept of alchemy is that as above, so below. And so the concept that each of the planets is in fact, and they have seven primary planets, so which would be soul and Luna or sun and moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Those are the seven main planets that you work with inside of the alchemical, uh, kind of cosmology up until the modern day that each one of those planets corresponds to a different metal and it also corresponds to a different energy center within the body. So for instance, Saturn corresponds to spleen, uh, soul corresponds to the heart, um, Luna corresponds to the brain and to the stomach and the breasts, like these, these types of things, uh, that every planetary center is for lack of a better term and to borrow a term from Vedic cosmology, like a chakra, it's an energy center inside of the body. So with that being said, in order to purify the astral channels inside of your body, you typically take one plant that corresponds to each planet Uh, for soul. You might use, say, rosemary or lemon peel, or you might use um, St. John's wort. would be another great one. Each plant having a different quality of the sun. Uh, Because all of the solar plants would have the total quality of the sun or in some traditions would also be able to, if worked together properly, you'd be able to synthesize a type of herbal gold, so to speak, out of the material that would have the same types of qualities as if we were to make the alchemical oil of gold in the metallic kingdom. So... All of those uh, would be good options. Uh, And then you just decide based on your constitution, like for instance, if you've always had a proclivity towards depression, then your solar herb might be St. John's wort. Whereas if you have a tendency towards being obese or having liver stagnation, then you might want to use rosemary, for instance. And that's how you kind of determine uh, what plants you might want to use. So Luna, um, you might use chickweed. Uh, That's a really common one. Um, When I went to the Amazon, I liked working with Bobinsana, uh, which grows very heavily in very damp areas. And um, it's got a a wonderful quality to it. Uh, Trying to think you might use if you have sleep problems and you might use valerian. So those would be some Luna herbs. Mercury would be anything that works typically with the nervous system Um, but it can also work with the liver and gallbladder and also with the assimilation of fat soluble nutrients. So, uh, traditional mercurial herbs, um, you would see things like cordyceps. You'd see things like, uh, lemon balm. You'd see things like, yeah. there's, there's just a lot of different plants. Anything that would work with the nervous system, bacopa would be a good one. Um, Then you would have, let's see. So there's Mercury. Uh, Venus would be the next one. Those would be things that work with the kidneys, with the reins and with uh, the sexual organs in particular. And so you might have uh, for Venus, like ladies mantle is a very common one to work with. Uh, You might have Rose, which would be another good one to work with. Um, Yeah, there's several others that probably people aren't too familiar with that come to mind. So I'll just skip those. Um, Then you would have Mars. Mars are going to be antibacterial type herbs and herbs that boost the immune system and immune functions of the individual. So that would be say like oregano makes a really great martial herb. Um, Usnea lichen makes a really great herb to work with. Uh, You know, other antibacterial herbs uh, that you might want to work with.
0: for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Nettle also is a really common one. Nettle leaf and or nettle nettle root. Those are really good. Uh, So anything that is really martial um and usually you can tell the qualities of these plants by how they grow in nature like a rose is going to be the rose petals themselves are going to bloom out they're very feminine they look very much so like a vulva and things like that those are the ways that you're going to be able to tell venusian plants because they carry the signature of venus or aphrodite with Mars, it's going to be Apollo and the gods of war. So anything that has spikes on it, like a devil's club in the Pacific Northwest or stinging nettle, for instance, or blackberry thorns, um, all of those things have a very martial quality to them. Even the rose stem has a lot of martial quality to it as well. So if you're using rose stem, then that's also going to be Mars based. Um, let's see, Jupiter, uh, those are things that typically work really well with the respiratory system um so things that are going to increase your respiratory capacity again cordyceps makes that list uh lemon balm can also make that list lavender is really good that makes the list um things like that and in the modern tradition actually um most of the mercurial herbs and most of the jovial which is say jupiter based herbs are oftentimes interchangeable because there's been a long debate uh, based on the historical literature as to whether Jupiter deals with the respiratory system or whether Mercury deals with the respiratory system. So sometimes those planets get flip-flopped based on my intrinsic data field analysis work that I have done as well as repetitive years of split testing, various different procedures. My tradition is that Jupiter actually corresponds to the respiratory system and Mercury more towards the nervous system and fat soluble systems of the liver. But you will actually find those flip flop in a lot of different literature sources and the majority of modern sources actually prescribe mercury to the respiratory system and Jupiter to the liver. But I find that exactly the opposite. And there are a lot of historical sources that also say the same as what I would say. So. You can, you can kind of interchange those herbs depending on what associations you want to play with. Uh, Saturn deals with the hair, the skin, the nails. So things like that would be, again, nettle works really well for that. Um, specifically nettle root over the nettle leaf. Uh, you would also have horsetail and comfrey. Those would be great ones to work for there. And uh, let's see, I think that pretty much takes us through the list of, of the seven.
1: That's really fascinating. Um, now, besides plants, let's talk about the other materials that can be used with spagyrics, you know, animal, mineral, or metal, um, yeah. and the differences of, you know, how, how they would be used to, to produce a final product.
2: Well, the processes are essentially essentially the same it's just that you're working with a different material and so like the spirit of that material is going to be different for instance in the uh, metallic realm when we're working with um, when we're working with metals especially in what's called the dry path the first thing that we do is we take a metal and we calcine it and we roast it down so that we can primarily get its oxide form Um, and once you have an oxide like uh, mercury oxide or lead oxide, then what you can do is you can take that oxide or a carbonate to, depending on the, the metal, you can either take the carbonate or the oxide form of that metal and, uh, dissolve that into vinegar or into purified vinegar, which is known as acetic acid. And then that will actually take the carbon or the oxygen has a gas and release it through, uh, a chemical process that's almost exactly the same. In fact, everybody's done this who's ever made a volcano to be perfectly honest. You made a volcano in science class, you took sodium, which is metal, sodium bicarbonate. So it has two atoms of carbon and one atom of sodium metal and they're in a form. And then you pour vinegar, which has about 5% acetic acid over it. And then you see that huge reaction. That's all the carbon gas that's escaping, chemically speaking. And so the same thing happens in in the alchemical world is that either you're working with carbon or working with an oxygen, but it's still going to bubble off and create that reaction. So you have to go rather slow, but the the metal oxide or the metal carbonate form will create a chemical reaction. And what ends up happening is that after that chemical reaction happens, you have a solution that is acetic acid as is the liquid component combined with whatever that metal is. So if you do it with lead oxide, for instance, then you're going to end up with lead acetate. And um, the process of growing crystals is very important in alchemy because all it is is a long, a prolonged process of heat and pressure. Uh, the pressure comes basically as a side effect of the heat where the liquid starts to slowly evaporate or condense in such a way where the minerals start crystallizing at first a seed crystal forms and then that actually wants to be solid lead wants to be solid it doesn't want to stay in a liquid form all metals and minerals want to be in a solid form and so once the first seed crystal forms then everything else inside of that solution will continue slowly to crystallize, 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 crystallize. And eventually, what you'll have are lead acetate crystals. And uh, then we take those lead acetate crystals, and we perform, uh, we dry them out and oxidize them so that there is a completely dry powder that we can grind really finely. We stick that in a flask and without any liquid, just the dry powder in a flask, we heat that flask up. Uh, Every different metal has a different flash point for its acetate form, but usually it's between about 200 Celsius to about 500 Celsius, some even higher than that, up to 900 Celsius, of course, but you just heat up that powder and that will begin to smolder. And as it smolders, then two things come out. Uh, You have uh, an advanced, what's called a pyrolytic distillation train. The first thing that comes over is going to be the oil of that metal. The second thing that comes over is going to be the spirit of that metal. So you have sulfur and mercury. And then what stays behind is the salt of that metal acetate form. The oil of the metal usually comes down to very advanced types of of different terpenes. Um, I don't know if any triterpenes have ever been found. Certainly, sesquiterpenes have been found and other more complex styles of terpenes, just like they do in the plants with the isolation of essential oils, which are primarily the terpenes of that plant. So, the same thing happens in the metallic realm. Um, that oil needs to be digested and matured for a long time before it can be used, especially before it can be consumed. Uh, and there's some special processes that need to go along with that but then the spirit that comes over is primarily acetone and so uh, there's a different acetone that can be produced for each of the individual metals like the spirit of gold is gold acetone Uh, the spirit of mercury would be mercurial acetone and they all smell different they have different chemical properties and constituents and they can, they're all capable of doing slightly different things uh, in terms of reactions. So the processes are almost identical to what we see in the herbal works. In fact, the bridge between the herbal work and that particular form we call, anytime that we're doing dry distillations, we call that huyacica, which is a Latin term that means the dry way or the dry path. Uh, and then there's also umida, which means the wet path. Um, The wet path uses exclusively solvents and corrosives and acids in order to be able to get at its final result. And uh, the dry path uses high heat on powders in order to create what we call a pyrolytic distillation. So there's always those two different pathways in every kingdom. But you can do the same work. You can take potassium carbonate and add vinegar to it, let the reaction happen. And then what you have is a relatively weak solution of uh, potassium acetate. And of course, potassium is a metal. And so you can perform this whole work just using nothing but the vegetable kingdom, because in order to make vinegar, for instance, all you do is make an alcohol by fermenting it and then let the open air. So you ferment anaerobically first to make alcohol, then you open it up, ferment, re-ferment that same ferment aerobically all of these acetobacter will enter in from the air and consume all of the ethanol and turn it into an acetic acid. And that's the way that vinegar is made. And then so realistically using nothing other than the vegetable kingdom itself, you can actually create the bridge between working on plants and working in metals. And that's where, you know, presumably the whole process and the concept came from is that you start with something that's relatively benign and, play around with it and work on these things. And what happens if I add this to this and this to this? And then you end up discovering more and more pathways that are more and more chemically complex and and more alchemically involved in the ways that uh, you're able to design and create items of pharmacopoeia.
1: And I've heard you say, um, you know, since you're dealing with the spirit or soul of, say, a plant or example, that you have to be careful of the concentrations that you take yourself because it could
2: have effect on your spirit or soul. Is that right? Yeah. Even, even just performing the process as an actual operator will begin to open up various aspects of your psyche and your spirit. Uh, psyche means soul. Uh, spirit would be like your disciplines and your daily behaviors and and the way that your energy generally comes across. Uh, And also it's going to purify various levels of your body too, a little bit um, just as you're performing the procedures. But once you take them, absolutely, the different concentrations are going to have enormous different effects in your body because uh, in alchemical cosmology, they correspond to either a constellation or a planet or both. And all of those are archetypal forms of consciousness within the multidimensional capacity of the human organism that are being awakened or purified. Those channels are being purified inside of the body. And so things that you may not have been used to feeling, suddenly you'll begin to feel. And there is an entire initiatic pathway uh, that alchemists historically follow in order to be able to open those things up consciously and to begin to become aware of various aspects of their multidimensional nature through opening up each of those channels. And in the Dubuis and Albertus pathways, it's typically making a stone of one plant that corresponds to each planet. So like, for instance, uh, the first thing that you do is you make a lunar stone and that could be, you know, uh, lavender, it could be valerian, it could be, you know, any plant that the Uh, corresponds to Luna that has a lot of essential oil qualities, essential oils are pretty much necessary to make good stones. Um, Then you would make that stone. And what makes an herbal stone as an item of pharmacopoeia as a definition is that it does not dissolve in water, just like you drop a rock or a stone into water. It doesn't dissolve. Right. And then you can also put it over the fire and it doesn't smoke. So you stick a rock on the fire nothing. you know. That's why we, we line our campfires with huge amounts of rocks. So the same thing has to be true uh, if you're making what's known as an herbal stone within is that it's neither susceptible to water nor fire. It doesn't break down by either of those, but it is completely soluble in ethanol. And that's typically how, how you take it, uh, is that you would dissolve your finished herbal stone inside of uh, a quantity of ethanol and then just take a drop or two uh, of that, that stone every single day. And it is, uh, for those who, you know, talk about DMT and, you know, other psychedelic drugs, which I'm no stranger to myself, uh, that looks really stupid, like child's play and literally just like being completely infantile in its approach in comparison to performing the alchemical pathways, because it's a much more grounded experience you can be here having a conversation just like I am, but simultaneously having the types of awareness uh, of multidimensional cosmologies and, and breakthroughs that are happening regularly, but it's much more integrated experience and it's not fleeting. It sticks with you and it compounds over time instead of going, taking this journey that's so vastly foreign that it's hard to ground it all back in. Instead, the alchemical approach makes these substances so that you can begin to uh, incrementally grow into and evolve and have full context for experiencing that same type of psychedelic lucidity uh, every day in your waking life.
1: So it's kind of like um, a doorway of opening up uh, your awareness to, like you said, uh, our multidimensional selves in reality. Uh, it can work in that way too, right?
2: Yeah, that's, yeah. Succinctly in layman's terms, that's exactly what, what's going on. Yeah, that's really cool. Um,
1: Now, I'd like to hear about um, some of your work with alchemy and uh, with biodynamics and agriculture. Um, It sounds very interesting what you're working with.
2: Cool. So, you know, realistically, there are archetypal processes that alchemy uses that you can't get away from. Like, for instance, calcination. That's a process that regardless of what Uh, kingdom you're working in, by kingdom, I mean vegetable kingdom, animal kingdom, you know, metallic kingdom, so on and so forth. Regardless of what kingdom you're working in, calcination is something that has to happen. Dissolution is something that has to happen. Uh, Separation is something that has to happen. Extraction, distillation, all of these things are things that have to happen. And so when I started really learning about these archetypal processes and looking for them, uh, one of the places that I turned was just looking towards nature and seeing how she performs each one of these processes individually and trying to wrap my mind around.
0: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer! A hand clapper, a high fiver. I kinda like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary, DW Void or prohibited by loss. 18 plus How the the difference of, of vegetation and of biology and flora and fauna and all these other things happens just naturally and how the sustainable and renewable nature of these things happens. And after some time sitting with that, I realized, you know what, realistically, if we approach nature like an alchemist, then we can apply this to agriculture as well, because there's a vast difference between ecology and agriculture. Realistically, agriculture does not happen by any other species, realistically, consciously at any rate besides humanity that we know of humans are the only ones that are like hey let's start a garden or let's you know keep other animals uh, with with some slight things like for instance uh bees will actually farm aphids because they or not bees sorry ants will farm aphids because they like the the excretion of their dew in the same way that we like the excretion of honey from bees so the, you know ants keep aphids the same way we keep bees. So there is some farming like that, but uh, there's not conscious agriculture that's going on that says, let me plant this so that I can harvest it later in the season. That's a very human based thing. Ecology doesn't really work so much in that realm. So I thought, well, that's, that's not that much different than alchemy. In fact, there's perfect parallels that nature is constantly performing alchemy for the evolution and the eventual perfection. Uh, of of species, there's constant like things are constantly growing, things are constantly changing based on the crisis of the environment that it's given. That is realistically nature's version of alchemy, and that's where alchemical philosophy, the entirety of it, comes from. Is watching nature and these same processes perform their thing. So if we take alchemical thinking and apply it towards ecology for the benefit of our own species, now that really becomes agriculture in a way. And I don't know that that has ever really truly been elucidated uh, in the context of looking at agriculture, but that's what it is, especially when we start taking a look at more ancient farming practices, like uh, in Ireland, the, there were two mystical races that went to Ireland of the Firbolik, and they descended allegedly from the mythical race of the Namedians. Uh the Firbulic, which were the people of the bag, they were really great at taking these bags that they would make and drawing seaweed and foliage from the forest and creating earth from nothing but rocks, seaweed, and and, uh, earth foliage. Today, we can look at that whole concept and we can say, well, that makes a whole lot of sense. In fact, if we add dung to that, now we have a source of decomposing material that is rich in microbes. We have seaweed, which is very rich in nitrogen and other different uh, trace nutrients, but especially nitrogen. We have tons of different fungal materials uh, by way of forest material. And we also have other different types of decomposing nutrients, depending on what's there. The difference between pine needles, oak leaves, maple leaves, et cetera, each different tree actually performs nutrient mining that is unique to itself that happens uh, to show up in the foliage as well. And then rocks, of course, uh, contain a large amount of phosphates and other things. And so when we take a look at this from a modern scientific uh, agricultural perspective, we can say every single one of the components that are necessary, bacteria, fungi, trace minerals, uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, they all show up inside of those processes that were legendarily written about in far ancient prehistoric times and then we start to follow the train of course of what has happened since the beginning of recorded history and we learn about you know the invention of the plow for instance or other things like this and we see that they would plow in manures and other things into their fields depending on what they were planting and you can begin to see that there is this trace element of Uh, alchemical process. Like for instance, at the end of an agricultural season, some communities, depending on what they would grow, would actually scorch the field. Well, that's going to put potassium from the ash back onto the field because, you know, ash is potassium carbonate, as we talked about. So there's carbon now and there's uh, uh, potassium there. And as the rains fall, it's going to extract that potassium and that carbon, and it's going to create this pure potassium carbonate into the soil so that whatever's growing there now has ample amounts of potassium and carbon to grow from. Uh, That's the process of calcination, dissolution, filtration, because the soil filters it out, and uh, eventually uh, the evaporation of the soil, making all of those things uh, possible and and available. So it's the exact same processes as what we see in the laboratory, it's just happening on a more earth-based cycle. Uh, Same thing with like uh, various things that you plant, they actually bring nitrogen from the air into the root system and into the soil. Those would be things like vetch, for instance, uh, beans and legumes. They, They are nitrogen fixers is what they call them, meaning that they draw nitrogen from the ambient environment and they put it into the roots and through the roots, fix it into the soil. Well, that looks like a process of extraction to me. Uh, so, it's not that much different than actually tincturing something. The only thing is that it's going from this air based space into a solid instead of the way that we typically would do it, which is drawing it out of a solid and back into uh, a liquid or into a gas. So, the same exact archetypal processes are constantly presenting themselves to us. And so, I created what is known as alchemiculture, which is a philosophy that uses alchemical ingenuity and philosophy to be able to create a completely harmonious system uh, that is based very much so on biodynamic agriculture and permaculture methodologies um, so that we can sustainably create uh, beyond organic agriculture. And I've uh, shown this not only in aquaponic environments with fish, but also bioponic environments without fish uh, using water as a menstruum for growing as well as in uh, earth-based growing and farming methods. So. It's very, very scalable and uh, it can be applied to literally whether you're working with a a pot uh, inside of, you know, like a a container at your apartment um, or whether you're working with, you know, a very vast farm system, the principles are infinitely scalable and uh, approachable in a very, very economic way. And like biodynamics, the philosophy is that absolutely everything that you need to start with is already present on the land. You don't need to draw any sort of external stimuli uh, at all as long as you know what you're doing. Um, You know, you might have a bunch of weeds there. All of those weeds are going to tell you exactly what minerals are already in the soil and when we convert them and extract them and get different mineral substances from them we can put those back in different proportions and ratios to condition the soil for whatever we want to grow so it doesn't take you know getting tons of sulfur to acidify your soil per se it takes understanding what's already there and finding what you can grow based on the ecology of of what exists so it's very hyper sustainable i'm sure um mainstream agriculture and you know
1: big corporations behind it surely don't like this information and don't want that information getting out very much. Um, have you ever tried to present any of this to kind of mainstream ag- agriculture
2: in any way? You know, I take the Buckminster Fuller approach. I try and model everything that I do based on the people that I admire and people that were very much so pioneers and forerunners of their time. Uh, Buckminster Fuller said something that was really critically important to me, an axiom that I try and live my life by, which is if you want to make any sort of change inside of society, I'm paraphrasing now, this isn't a precise quote, but if you want to make any sort of change in society, don't try and change the society itself. Create a system that makes the old ways completely obsolete. And... That's all that my work really focuses on. I would be happy if generations after I'm dead, if people look back to the work that I'm doing now and say, man, that guy was really kind of ahead of his time. He was creating something. That's the type of change that I'm looking for, not the change that will necessarily be present within my lifetime. I want something that is perennial and that will stick and be a springboard for many generations after my death. Um, And if people get on board within the context of my life, then hell, that's great too. But I understand that usually change is not so welcome and it takes a long time. Uh, It takes a long time in the laboratory for me to change the chemical compositions of something that was native inside of one of my materials to something that's more complex. So I understand that timeline and just want to work within that. So I have absolutely zero interest in trying to present to commercial models Uh, how to do this, uh, again, understanding that that isn't their prerogative, that's not what they're interested in. And if I do try and present to them, and try and show them what's available from the scale of, you know, commercialism, it puts them out of business, It, it draws away from their bottom line. And I'm not looking to paint a target on my head, you know, I'm not looking to even interfere in any of their economic pursuits, because what's working now has to work now in order for us to get to the next level. Everything is born out of an inherent death of the old system and the need, the crisis being created for the need for something else to to take form. So I just want to create enough of a system that when the crisis happens, that there is already options, that there are already solutions available for people to be able to pick up on. And uh, for my part, if I can reach out to grassroots individuals, people who already own farms or have small gardens or whatever else, who want to apply these principles, uh, then that will be the best way to make this a living tradition that will eventually be able to carry over.
1: Yeah, very well said. Um... Phoenix, I want to thank you for coming on tonight. Um, Before you leave, I'd like you to tell us all about the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy, what you offer there, and there are other teachers there as well, right?
2: Uh, Yeah, we do oftentimes bring in other teachers and other specialists to talk about things and give presentations. Uh, I definitely kind of head and spearhead the project. Of course, it's my namesake. Um, But, uh, yeah, so the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy is an academy of uh, teachers and students, basically, that are able to apply various different technologies, ranging from, of course, agriculture to healing to, uh, you know, pharmacology and so on and so forth, the ecology. Uh, And we try and run split tests to be able to find out the very best way of doing things and try and find very innovative ways that are not necessarily tied up in uh, current methods or technologies to be able to go about life in a, in a much more hyper-sustainable way and uh, to make so sincere advances to our community and our ways of life. So uh, we specialize very heavily in researching spagyria and alternative uh, wellness, alternative agriculture. Basically, if it's alternative, we've got our hands in it. <laughs> um, so if you visit the website at phoenixaurelius.org, then uh, you'll find that we have a lot of different ways where uh, people who are interested in supporting our mission can get something of reciprocal value for supporting us because it takes an enormous amount of uh, time and money to be able to research these things. We're not eligible for grants. We don't participate within the systems of uh, either economics or, or of scholasticism like most people do because they're not interested in our approaches realistically. Uh, Or if they are, it's very fringe and it's hard to get support. So 100% of what we do is publicly funded. And uh, we sell spagyric tinctures and different items of spagyric pharmacopoeia. Uh, I oftentimes run wellness research programs, although those are closed at the moment. Um, I do uh, a lot of consultation work and things like that. And so, you know, I'm constantly providing services and products that, uh, benefit people in their own particular subjective circumstances and they pay pay me for those services uh, and that's the way that we earn our money so that uh, when I'm not doing the services and making the products, I have the time and the the availability and the money to be able to perform much more of the uh, extensive research and to buy the materials that I might need and to fund the laboratory work and so on and so forth uh, so that 100% of this is all bootstrapped and self-funded Uh, based on the purchases that we get. So we're also trying to kind of create a new economic model that doesn't rely on people just giving us money every month like Patreon, but where it's like, hey, we have things that are beneficial and available for you. And if you want to take part in this, then you can pay us for it. And that supports our research.
1: Very cool. Phoenix, thank you again so much for coming on. That was absolutely fascinating information. Uh, Very cool stuff. And your website was phoenixaurelius.org, right? That's right. Awesome. Everybody check that out. I'm going to have that in the description. And until next time, have an excellent evening, everyone.